Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. John? Jono? I'm here. I always start, and I thought maybe you could start. <laughs> I, I was confused by the whole thing. I yeah, thought, I'm, always, I'm, are... always, I'm always first, and it's like, I'm, you know, and you only, you don't even listen to this. What? You, you just, you just. Oh, why you would just you say, say that? No, you just say it. Once uh, I've said it here, then I've got to edit it and have to listen to it 15,000 times. And I'm tired of being the guy who always opens. And so now that we are in part two, second half of season two, maybe we'll shake things up a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll we'll start it. See, and I thought it, I thought it was the uh, 13th episode, Lucky 13, and it was the jinx there. I didn't know, I didn't know what had happened. I was, I was terrified. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you or the listeners. And I should say that culturally, uh, we're going to talk about cultural norms here today. Culturally, 13 is unlucky. Some places, it's very lucky others. So don't assume when you're talking to someone that they're going to think that 13 is an unlucky number because it may not. And is that true? That, that is true. And if you I thought, it was, I thought 13 was unlucky straight across the board. It is not. If you would do a quick Google search, you would find that out. I'm not huh. going to do it now because that's not really our purview. We're, 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 we're podcast. We can't Google things now. We can't be Googling things. Anyway, so this is episode 213, chapter 13, which is, I think, worse than chapter 11 financially. I don't remember when bankruptcy, which is worse, 11 or 13, but we are at 213, chapter 13. And we're going to be talking to today a magician uh, extraordinaire and a podcast producer extraordinaire, a uh, friend of the show, Kayla Drescher. You know, I first became aware of Kayla via the podcast Shezam, S-H-E-Z-A-M, which she co-created with past podcast guest and also friend of the show, Carissa Hendricks, aka Lucy Darling. And we're going to hear in our chat with Kayla, that podcast, Shazam, really had an impact on the Eli Mark series, didn't it? It really did. You know, there were other podcasts where I learned things about uh, trick names and kind of sometimes how magicians spend their days and all that. But with what Kayla did for a while there with Carissa, and now she's doing it on her own, was talk about the things magicians should be doing and the things they're doing wrong. And they were never doing it in a shaming kind of a way. They're never doing it in a wagging finger kind of way. They're just saying, hey, folks, this is not the way you treat a volunteer when they come on stage. A volunteer is not a table, which is something they said, which Harry goes on to say, a lot of the attitudes that I've learned from those two folks on that podcast uh, later came out of Harry's mouth because it was, it was I don't want to say critical, but it was taking a, sh- a clear look at what magicians are doing as performers and saying, we can do better, stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Eugene Berger, uh, who I go back to all the time because he's my guy, uh, had a um, had a uh, kind of an overarching uh, idea that the spectator should be the star of your show rather than the stooge of your show. Who wants to? I mean, the minute the magician says, "I need a volunteer." No one makes eye contact because they, we've all seen people get up on stage and a magician makes them look like a, a stooge or a schmuck. Mm-hmm. And who wants that experience? And Eugene really was adamant about turning the spectator into the star of the show and, and respecting them in a way, but memorizing their name and doing all of those kinds of things that, uh, that Kayla really is going to talk about. But the, the idea of shifting 
mores or shifting societal norms is real and you disregard it at your peril. And I can tell you just from my own, I've been doing a show or had been doing a show for 20 some odd years called The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged. Three guys doing all of Shakespeare's plays in about 90 minutes. Uh, And it requires one of us to dress as a woman. 20 years ago, that was super funny. Now, the mores have shifted a little bit and men dressing as women, not as funny or as acceptable as it was just 20 years ago. Uh, there's a section of the show that requires these three white guys to, to rap. Uh, and that too has really shifted. And, and we didn't think of it and we didn't know it because we've been doing the show for 20 some odd years and we do it every summer and we, we put it up in front of a, a group and I noticed the looks on their faces at a certain point, you know, like, I can't believe you're doing that. And we didn't even think about it because we've been doing it for 20 years, but things shift. And if you don't pay attention, not only are you going to get left behind, but you're also going to look terrible and you're going to feel terrible. The week after that happened, I was devastated. I don't, I don't want to offend anybody unless I choose to offend them. I don't want to offend them accidentally, I guess, which is, you know, what we did. And so we had to shift everything for that, uh, for, for the rest of that run so that we wouldn't fall into that trap. So what she's talking about, if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, oh, come on, or, oh, oh the, they, them, she, it, but what's the difference? there's a big difference and uh, you don't want to be the person who finds out how big a difference there is because you've gotten something so simple wrong. Yeah, exactly. And it's a perfect continuation of what we learned last episode with Ryan Kane and getting your stock lines and the episode before that with uh, Harrison Greenbaum and not being terrible and not being a cover band. This idea of looking at changing cultural norms is really, really as important as pulling out stock lines. And Shazam was born out of all that. In fact, the origin story for Shazam was the very first thing we talked about with Kayla. So for the listening audience who doesn't know about your podcast, what is Shazam? So Shazam started uh, about four years ago now when I had had pretty much I would just boiled over with experiences that were so specific to my gender in the magic community. And I, you know, I've been doing magic since I was seven years old and day one, I was told to leave because I was a girl. And of course I didn't because um, screw that. And so uh, I just had sort of, I was just done. I was cooked. I was over it. And uh, we started Shazam as a podcast to discuss this stuff and how we can make magic more accepting and diverse. And what I realized, um, especially going into season three, was that I uh, really don't know what I'm talking about. And so I got to bring on, (laughs) right? So I got to bring on a lot of really amazing people and a lot of conversations happened that expanded past gender and moved into race, cultural appropriation, sexual preferences, etc. And it was just like, whoa, there's a lot more we need to do in magic and no one else is doing it. So I guess I have to, you know, you know, those moments where you're like, nobody else is taking this on. 
Oh, yes, it's me. And and so that's what happened. So um, season three became way more about just inclusion and equity and just trying to move past the idea of going, oh, wow, a black magician. Oh, wow, a woman doing magic. Um, Or everyone says female magician, but I tried to avoid that term. And season four is going even deeper into ableism, into autism. We just have a lot going on in season four. So I'm really excited. I'm tired, but I'm excited. (laughs) Looking forward to it. We want to talk about what magicians are doing right and what they're doing wrong. If a mag- beginning magician is listening right now, what's the most I am. Com- I'm listening. Well, you're, <laughs> I'm you're listening little, right now. I would argue I'm more of a ma- beginning magician than you are because I only know one card trick and you know a lot more. than You can stick a needle through your arm. I, can. I can't do that, nor will I. But a ma- beginning magician listening in, what are the most common mistakes that they're making that they should probably kind of unlearn right now? Emulation needs to, you can start copying somebody, but you have to, as you start to get better and learn more, that has to go away. So um, Darren Brown actually gives this advice to young magicians where he says, copy me, you know, copy other people, be a copycat for a while so you can learn how to do it right and you can learn why this is the right way to do things but then you have to learn who you are and put you into your performance there are so many taryn brown copycats so many copperfield lance burton all these people are doing someone else and that is super disingenuous when you watch that performance you know if i tried to copy lance burton it wouldn't be very good because i'm not some suave guy so it doesn't it doesn't work out so a lot of people try to copy it first which i did too and it it makes things a lot easier and to learn but you have to then leave that aside as you get better and more experienced and bring yourself into the performance to be genuine to be likable to be um as soon as that wall goes up between you and the audience where the audience doesn't feel you're authentic then none of the magic is going to be believable. It's not going to be good. It's going to feel like a challenge and a trick, and we don't want that. So that's my biggest advice for someone who's starting out. Copy now, but get rid of it as soon as you can. Right. That makes sense. Hey, can we talk about names of tricks? Here's something I can actually weigh in on a little bit. Uh, All of John's books in the Eli Mark series are named after tricks. I know, John, we talked about perhaps the Hindu shuffle, but you nixed that because it's really a move and not a trick. Right. Uh, Gypsy Thread was on the list of possible titles. What's what's the biggest issue you think with trick names? Well, the ones that you named are maybe shouldn't be what the name is. I mean, the term gypsy is already an issue and it's been written about and and it's offensive to a culture and to a people uh it very much diminishes an entire culture so uh i like to just call it torn and restored thread that's what the trick is and it's just an easier way of explaining it um the hindu shuffle's been tricky we've had like eight names on trying to rename the hindu shuffle uh because also so the hindu shuffle from my understanding and this could be slightly off i tried to ask the appropriate historians about this information Uh, the hindu shuffle was named because magicians saw quote unquote the hindu people shuffling that way but it's also a shuffle that is used 
amongst just lay people, you know, people who are playing cards and stuff all across Asian countries. And it's also like, okay, well, why? <laughs> this is kind of a strange, like, maybe not the best name. Maybe it's fine. You know what? If it's on the line, let's just call it something else. So we've been calling it the open overhand shuffle. I'm not super satisfied with it, to be honest. And it's not catching on like Tournament Restored Thread did. Uh, so eventually we'll have a good idea that will go, ah, that that will catch fire. Um, but Tournament Restored Thread, um, a lot of people have come up to me and are going like, oh, yeah, I've been doing a version of Torn and Restored Thread, and I call it that because of Shazam. So that's really cool. Uh, so yeah, I think sometimes really older tricks, uh, like there's one, and I'm going to say the name of it and trigger warning for anyone of Asian descent, uh, but there is an, a trick called Chinka Chink, and you know, that's a racist term. Uh, I know that the trick was, you know, in theory named after the sound of the coins and the bottle caps. But actually, when you go a little bit deeper into it, there's some pretty anti-Asian patter in the original writing. And so it's it's not a great thing. And it's still used today. People still refer it as that title. That's got to go. Uh, and so there are a lot of tricks that because they were named in a time where there was such a mysticism around, quote, the Orient, you know, you because you couldn't go to China, you couldn't go to Japan. So when a magician would would say, I traveled the Orient and look at this thing I found and it, it was it was mystical, the audiences were so into it. And, and they believed that you had maybe like a power because you went somewhere so captivating. But really, it was just a stereotype of a culture and a country. And so there are some issues that existed within magic with naming tricks for sure. Oh, My gosh. hope is that uh, at some some future person listening to this years from now will go, oh, we don't, we've, we haven't, I've never heard it called that before because it's gone. It's been changed properly. That would be amazing. Uh, I would love that. That would be so great. Well, while we're talking about uh, names, uh, I want to talk a little bit about pronouns. Uh, when we talked to Ryan Kane, he mentioned that he's working on removing all the pronouns from his act and that it isn't as easy as you might think it is to do that. Why is that a good idea? And are there, are there other uses of language people should be concerned about when dealing with an audience? So with pronouns, because, it, you know, it, today gender is such a a fluid, undefined thing where someone could like, I identify as a woman, I use she, her pronouns, uh, but I have friends that don't identify, they, they're non-binary, so they use they, them pronouns. And when you are a performer, think you have to think about your audience every audience member has a like a balloon above their head right and it's a happy balloon they're so excited to be here but if you do or say something that makes them not enjoy the show you pop their balloon and then the rest of the show is tough so with pronouns if someone in the audience identifies as non-binary and you gender them with a binary gender, call them a woman, call them, hey, uh, the woman with the red shirt, the man with, you know, that's sitting there, you've popped their balloon. And now they're, they're like, oh, darn. <sighs> okay, this is just another time in my life that I have to, you know, deal with this. And you don't want that in your show, right? You want people to enjoy it. So it's a pretty great idea to just have a blanket of no specific gender. So 
you can use someone's name. That's so super easy. Just learn their name. Look at that. We all have names done easy. Uh, and then you can just use a blanket. They, them let's give them a round of applause, you know, clap for them as they come on stage. You can just use they, them, and then you're fine. No one has ever complained to me in the last three years that they're upset. I called them they or them. It's just blanket. But I have had someone who was a regular attendee of this magic venue. And after my show, I used them as a regular person. Like they were the callback. They were, I went to them a lot. And after the show, they came to me crying because it was the first magic show in like a year of them attending this space where they didn't have to correct someone on their pronouns because they're non-binary. And that to me was, I went, oh, this is really important. And I think it's something that everyone should consider doing. Also in, in today, when you look at someone, you can't automatically know their gender. You know, if they have short hair, if they're dressed a certain way, you don't know how they identify. And so why even just take, why risk it? Why misstep where then they have to go, oh, actually I am, I'm a woman, I'm a guy, I'm non-binary. Just make it blanket so that it's not important. It's not something they need to think about and they can just enjoy the show. And then you have no awkward moment on stage. Yeah, I did have an awkward moment well before I started Shazam where I called up a kid and I called them a, a boy and they were like, I'm a girl. And I was like, oh, no. And this was well before I even knew what non-binary was or pronouns. Like it was I just I felt terrible. And I'm so glad that I learned how to do this. It takes a while. You have to obviously retrain your brain. And But honestly, I know it's hard and I know we'll mess up. And I still occasionally accidentally slip some a, a pronoun in that's, I go, Oop, oops, my bad. Uh, but honestly, it is so worth it. I've only seen great things come from it. So I would just really recommend to all performers, get rid of them, just use the blanket, they, them, use their name. And you're, they don't have to worry about it anymore. And if you want to practice doing it, uh, be a mystery writer trying to write a description of who the killer is without giving anything away. Uh, and you have to go with they, them, because uh, a he or she is going to, you know, all of a sudden take your, your possible suspects and cut them in half. So it's a great idea. I would say, too, uh, the minute you are confronted by that problem on stage and someone corrects you, you, you probably are going to then be be very hyper-conscious of it going forward. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think we all just need to, we don't throw garbage out our window, car window anymore. We just learn not to do that. And this is sort of the same thing. We just have to learn not to do this. Uh, and, it, and it only takes one mistake on stage that you have to deal with in real time in front of an audience for you to go, oh, okay, I don't want to be in that again. That's, that's not for me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like this a lot. I like talking about this a lot because it's going to affect all of us. It's on some level somewhere. Jim, have you seen any shift of what you've had to do as a corporate MC? Has there been any change in the last few years? Not really. I mean, I haven't been confronted with it, but uh, I, I would say I, I always ask a person's name and I commit it to memory right away. So. I can just refer to them by their name and then I'm not in generally not in any danger. And that was just a choice I made years and years ago to try to, and I think Eugene Berger said there is told, told me there's real power in a person's name. 
And if you say a person's name and use a person's name, not only does that get you a, a, a level of trust and commitment between you and whoever you've got on stage, but it's terrific misdirection when you need it to be. That's been my kind of theory all along. And I, but hearing this conversation, it makes me think, oh, I, I got to be, I, I absolutely have to be hyper aware of this because I'm, you're going to run into it if you're not. This is not a visual podcast, but I will say that Kayla's been nodding her head like a, a, <laughs> a, a bobblehead in the back of the car. Yeah. You know, speaking of the audience, I was probably about halfway through the Eli Mark, the first four books probably were probably done by the time uh, Shazam came out and I started listening to it regularly. And so I started trying to incorporate uh, ideas I was learning uh, from you. Uh, in in there. And I tended to put them in the mouth of uh, Uncle Harry. I thought it was more interesting if Uncle Harry were sort of schooling Eli on, no, 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 no. That's no, you don't do that. No, don't, don't. That's idiotic. Don't do that. And one of the first ones I remember uh, Harry scolding him on was why you bring that person on stage. You're just using them as a prop. I feel like I'm seeing that less sometimes, but with less seasoned performers, there's still that sense of uh, I ha- you're here just to hold this deck of cards, basically. You're a table. Do you think that's still something that needs to be addressed? I think it should always be addressed so that it doesn't happen, right? And um, we've used on Shazam, we've used a couple of different uh, analogies, which is can can the audience volunteer be replaced by a table? If they can, <laughs> you should rework this. Yeah, I think I think there are times where it's ever so slightly unavoidable you know like i'm i used to be in this massive tour and uh because of timing because we it was we had to have such a tight show i didn't have the opportunity to play with the audience and and do all of that so even in those situations occasionally that person would feel a bit more like a prop i do whatever i could to make sure that they didn't feel that way but still there are some times where it's pretty tricky to not have them feel a little bit like they're being used. Uh, but when you have the when you have control over the show and when you can, yeah, it's ideal to make sure we're still talking about it because audiences, audi- audience members are kind of in tune to when something is inauthentic. And so as soon as they start feeling like a prop, they they can tune out, they can not be into it. And they're like, I don't want to be won't be your table. <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, so yeah, it's definitely important to to keep talking about it, I think, because we don't want to do it anymore. And it's still definitely a thing I see, even amongst professionals. Some of like the biggest names in our community, I'll watch them, you know, at the Magic Castle or at a convention or something. And I'm like, oh God, they're just another prop. Okay, great. So yeah, it's definitely something to keep talking about so that it stops. <laughs> It'd be good. One of the... Uh... One of the most amazing to me episodes of Shazam, uh, and if if magicians who are listening haven't heard it, go back and listen to all of them because they're valuing all of them. But you did an interview with Jabrizi, who's a magician who's put out a lot of tricks. And there's one of them that if if performed the way he was showing you how to do it, which I believe was getting a card out of a, a, a volunteer's back pocket, um, it was pretty much assault if you did it the way he did it. It's one of the most interesting interviews I've ever heard because of the way you handled him and the way you didn't go as nuts as I was going listening to his responses. Uh, you were just really even-handed, fair review. And and he would say things like, well, you don't have to do the trick that way. But the the, the way it was demoed, that's what it was doing it. And the idea that a lot of magicians are single young guys uh, who unfortunately see as part of their mission to, to meet women 
while doing magic. And so that really fed into it. Can you just give me your thoughts now that it's, it's been a while since that interview and, and what that indicated when it comes to the way people, magicians are looking at, again, using the way they're using their volunteers? Well, to kind of explain like slightly further on that tutorial too, is on in the advertisement, in the trailer, the trick was performed like it was a YouTube video, right? Because the the woman that was participating in it is a regular actor in Chabrizi's videos. And so she was like, no, I want to, I want to reach in your back pocket. And then he's like, well, I want to reach in your. So it was consensual, right? Like that was a consensual scripted rehearsed video. So that's, that's okay. My issue came with one, majority of people buying that trick are going to be teenage boys because that's magic Mm -hmm. and they're going oh i can do that because the video the tutorial what he did say make sure you ask before you reach in someone's back pocket but then kind of laughed it off going okay like i don't want to get in trouble so don't get me in trouble make sure you ask because i don't want to get in trouble Mm -hmm. and so that really bothered me but then the rest of the trick was like yeah, no, just reach in their pocket, you know, reach in their pocket, they'll reach in yours. And where I perform, where these teenage kids perform is very different than where Jabrizi performs. And therefore, these kids are thinking it's cool to go do this in school when it's not. And you cannot guarantee that that audience volunteer, most likely a woman, is going to want you to reach on her bum and take things out of her back pocket and vice versa getting in a hug trapping a woman in a hug like so i was quite bothered by that and also i understand his point he did have a brilliant point by saying he's not responsible if someone doesn't know how to act properly and that is true i know he didn't create the trick either so the trick was not even his i wish really abstract effects one would respond it because I wanted to have them on the podcast, but they've completely ignored me. I've emailed them regularly, nothing. But I wish they had more responsibility of going, yeah, we just don't want to put that out into the world and make that even an option. I wish there was just that sort of level of care. Obviously, where the, the episode derailed was when then I asked Jabrizi about using an anti-gay slur and how do we feel about that? And then he was happy to just troll me. Yeah, I would say it's not worth a listen because it's over. You know, he did apologize. He did really try to edu- educate himself. I was quite impressed with how he responded to the aftermath of it, um, but also... I still see the videos that he's putting out. So I can't, I can't always, I, I wish I could have done more to say, please stop doing this stupid garbage. But here we are still at it. Can't do anything. Not my responsibility. Well, yeah. But, you know, we, we uh, earlier in the season, we talked to Joshua Jay about a whole episode just on uh, what do you call tragic magic, which yeah. is magic that uh, people died or were injured. And one of the last things he said that I thought was so interesting was we said, you know, you're not just an author and a working magician. You run a company that releases tricks. What is your policy on releasing tricks that in this instance are dangerous? And he said, we don't do it. And we talk about it quite a bit. And he said, there have been a number of tricks that are fantastic that I would love to be selling, but 
they're dangerous and you couldn't get hurt. Um, and so we're not going to do that. And I think I'm sure they're also along the same lines thinking the same sort of thing. We're not going to do t- release things that can be misused this way. Yeah, exactly. And you it, you don't even want to put it in someone's head. If you purchase an effect and someone and th- that person goes off the rails and does it in a really inappropriate way, but the effect itself was not, you didn't put that in somebody's head, then that's, you know, whatever, you can't help that. Right. But when you are already saying this is how to perform the effect, I think you have a bit of responsibility here. And I always go back to, I've quoted, I've quoted her so many times on Shazam. I will always quote her in Monica Lewinsky's Ted talk. She spoke about her, you know, her massive experience. And one of the things she said is, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but please remember, we also have responsibility of speech. And when you put things out into the world and you have a platform and you are influencing a generation, you, I think you should take some responsibility. This is my opinion. You know, I, I'm very careful what I put out on social media and everything because I don't want to influence anyone to do something that I would feel is negative. So I think we do have a responsibility of what we put out there and, and how we influence the world, especially if you have such a massive platform. That's, you know, that's just my opinion. I know a lot of people would probably disagree, but I think that it's important how we influence the world. So let's talk about that just for a second. Are there some things since you have started your podcast where you think, well, there's some actual change right there? Yeah, I I have seen a lot of change, actually, which is really cool. So um, I have a lot. I definitely, you know, then the titles of tricks, Torn and Restored Thread, as I mentioned, has been a massive change. I've just heard people say it. I don't think I'm also the only person to have said it. I think that this is a regular thing. People are going, no, 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 we got to cut that, which is awesome. So I think it's great. I've seen that. But I have seen a massive spike in just the confidence of women who listen to Shazam and how they experience the magic industry. And I've seen a lot of women, you know, be more willing to put themselves forward and be a part of things and, and jam and do shows and work on stuff and like go the proper route and like be good at magic and, and take their turn. And I've seen that happen a lot since we started Shazam. There's more of a almost networking community. It used to be quite, and it still is, but it used to be very competitive amongst women in the industry. It always felt like, you know, we had to be the the best woman. And it still is language a lot of people use where they say, oh, you're a very good female magician. Oh, you're, who's the best female magician? <laughs> and that's very competitive. It really creates this competitive culture. I'm seeing that a lot less. And I think it's in part due to Shazam, in part due to just people being fed up with the culture and, you know, in general society's mentality changing around the competitive nature between women. But I've seen that is a massive change. And I've just seen a lot of people are more willing to have these conversations. Um, We've had a lot of, you know, panel discussions on Shazam. I think those conversations have really opened up. Um, I think, again, half of it is Shazam and half of it is the current worlds. And so I 
just see a lot more people being willing to have these discussions and talk about pronouns and talk about, um, oh, that <laughs> maybe don't use Chinese coins in your trick because they're a caricature of a culture uh, and things like that. And I'm so, so I am seeing a lot of conversations open up and the more conversations that open up, the more change will eventually come. Yeah, it's, it's so pervasive that even in corporate emails that I receive for my MC work, uh, vice presidents will include in their little signature, you know, their email, their telephone number, and their pronouns now. And I'm getting that from vice presidents and presidents of Fortune 500 companies. This is serious stuff, and people are taking it seriously. And if you don't, you're going to kick yourself. Uh, the best way is to ask for a name and memorize it. That's what I learned anyway. And uh, that's what I live by, but it, just thinking it through. Yeah. Think well, as, as you said in the, in the interview, you know, you learn that the hard way. And as Kayla said, you know, start with a name. Everybody's got names. That's really the easiest way to do it. Anyway, this is all important stuff. And I really appreciate Kayla talking to us about it. She also stuck around to talk to us about her experiences on Fool Us. Uh, we have a bonus video on the behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast YouTube page, where you can see her talking about uh, that very interesting experience. And we've also included a link to Kayla's actual performance on Fool Us, in which she got to do a silent routine with Teller. And mm. she talks about how that came about and how Johnny Thompson helped her refine the routine in some key visual ways that that made it more something that reflected her personality. There's one thing she says in the video about being on Fool Us that is really key to how to build a better magician. Uh, and I'm, I'm just going to give it to you right now. In preparation yeah. for her performance on the show in the days preceding the taping, Kayla performed the trick about 100 times a day. And uh, as she said, that's a lot of paper. But that's, I think, something we haven't touched on a lot, the importance of repetition. But if you want to get better at something, goodness gracious, do it 100 times a day and you, you'll probably be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, is uh, Malcolm Gladwell? 10, Malcolm Gladwell hours? has the 10,000 hours thing. Although I've always, uh, I think someone did sort of a caveat to it, which was to say the 10,000 hours of practice only works if you're actually doing it right. If you're doing <laughs> it wrong for 10,000 hours, it's, it's still going to be wrong. So before you put in the time, make sure that what you're doing is you're doing it correctly. And I, I'm not sure Mr. Gladwell mentioned that. I think he just sort of assumed that we'd get that in, in, in reading, you know, about the, about the Beatles uh, working in Hamburg and Bill Gates having access to computers when he was five and uh, you know, all those 10,000 hour stories, you've got to be doing it right during that 10,000. You can't just do it blindly. You, you'd think that after the first, I don't know, thousand hours, you would have discovered what's right and what's wrong and then could start doing it. But in any case, get it right the first time and you're really going to be way ahead of the curve. Yeah. Anyway, um, so if you get a chance, look at the link and listen to Kayla talking about that experience. Um, but before we do that, John, before they jump. Yeah, they shouldn't leave now. We're not no, done. Not now, because we've got, we've got a chapter of the bullet catch coming right up. We do. We have chapter 13. Wouldn't you, uh, you know, kindly bring us up to date? Uh, that's a highlight of the, the podcast for me. Sure. Well, what happened last time in chapter 12 was basically that Eli had a panic attack and um, and then he found Howard Washburn dead. He'd never met him. He'd spoken to him on the phone and he uh, chatted with Deirdre about it. 
And then Deirdre did a nice thing. She helped him uh, get back to his car because it was way up high in that parking lot. It was very, very nice for her to do that. Occasionally, Deirdre does that. And that brings us right now to chapter 13. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 13. Eli, let's think of your subconscious as a balloon. Is this a magician metaphor? Are these balloons in the shape of animals? Dr. Baki ignored the comment and plowed ahead. And think of stress as just one of the gases that fills that balloon. If the balloon gets too full of stress, something has got to give somewhere. Hence, your attacks. So these, hey, let's throw ourselves off a high building thoughts are just like holes in a balloon? Essentially. Well, given that it happened again today and in front of my ex-wife, no less, I think we need to patch that balloon and pronto. Well, if you want to continue with the metaphor, a patch is just that, a patch. I think it would be better to find a way to keep from overfilling the balloon. I spread my hands in front of me in a posture of supplication. I'm all yours. I believe what's happening to you is that your subconscious has taken an existing fear and, in a sense, supersized it. Like a Coke at a movie theater? Sort of. Before these major panic attacks began, can you think of experiences in your recent past where you experienced acrophobia? Well, let me see, I said, thinking back over the last few months. I was at a party last year where the porch had a glass or acrylic floor. It was see-through. I was only up a couple of stories, but I didn't care for that. Dr. Baki dutifully made a note. Any other instances? Well, last fall when Megan and I almost died, I took a heck of a tumble down a steep incline. It was a big hill, maybe three or four stories high. That could be significant, he said. Well, sure, but that took five seconds. I'd spent the previous hour trapped in a cave in pitch darkness. Why don't I have supersized claustrophobia? Because you didn't have claustrophobia to begin with. You had a minor fear of heights which has now blossomed into a major fear of heights, and it's starting to get in the way of your day-to-day -day life. You could say that, I deadpanned. So what do we do? Dig back into my childhood? He shook his head. I'm not a big fan of that. Sure, that's because for you it was only five minutes ago. I think our best course of action, he said, keenly ignoring my remark, would be to continue with the immersion therapy just not to the extreme that you took it at your high school reunion. Understood, I said. I'm for any plan that gets me back to my previous level of acrophobia or that can get rid of it altogether. That's fine, but you may get even more than that, he said. Remember, sometimes our greatest fear is actually our greatest strength. Again with the fortune cookies, I joked. But I'd later find that the good doctor's little piece of wisdom was closer to the truth than I might have imagined. I left the building where Dr. Baki had his office in a bit of a daze. The events of the day had taken their toll, and then an hour of sharing my feelings on top of that had contributed to a definite feeling of lightheadedness. Given all that, I think I can be excused for not noticing more quickly I was being followed. 
but I should have really caught on faster because my stalker was not being subtle by any means. A black sedan followed me through the parking lot. It moved silently and slowly behind me as I made my way to my car. And I mean right behind me, about two feet behind me, matching my speed with precise deliberation. I finally recognized there was a car on my heels and stepped aside, moving closer to the other parked cars, but the sedan continued matching my pace. I slowed down even more, and so did the sedan. I stopped, and the car mimicked my action. I glanced over at the car, but couldn't see any occupant in the front or the back due to windows that looked to be tinted well above the legal limit. I sped up, trying to get to my own car that much sooner, but the car increased its speed as well. I clicked the remote lock for my car and pulled the driver's door open with a bit more sense of panic than I had hoped to exhibit. I slid into the driver's seat, shut and locked the door, and turned on the ignition in what resembled one continuous action. As I was about to put the car into reverse, I glanced at the rearview mirror and saw the black sedan was still there, directly behind me, blocking my exit. I turned to look at the side-view mirror for other options and found myself face-to-face with Harpo. Sadly, it was not Harpo Marx who would have been a delightful and welcome surprise. Instead, it was Mr. Lime's henchman, the soundless fireplug, whose bulldog face was nearly pressing against my window. In keeping with his namesake, he silently jerked his head toward the sedan. I sat there for a long moment, considering my options, realizing I had precious few. I shut off the engine, opened the door, and stepped out of my car, wishing, as it would turn out, not for the first time, I had skipped this year's reunion altogether. I was directed into the back of the sedan by Harpo, who held the door open for me with a steely persistence. I peered into the dim light and finally recognized the bony Mr. Lime in the murky space. Come in and chat with me for a moment, he said. Do I have a choice? Free will? Yes. A choice? No. Get in. I hesitated, and he smiled up at me. Mandrake. If our plan was to hurt you, it would have happened much, much earlier, and right now, you'd either be recuperating in the hospital or in the morgue, experiencing late-stage rigor mortis. With that comforting statement, I settled in the back seat. Harpo shut the door and returned to his post behind the wheel. How was your therapy session? Mr. Lyme asked the question with a tone that almost suggested genuine interest and concern. However, his broad smile with his translucent skin and lips pulled back tight across his face canceled any sense of warmth immediately. So your therapist, he's a good one? Have you been following me? He smiled again. I think the answer to that question is fairly obvious, he said, shaking his head. But to put your mind at rest, we're not making a career of it. I stuttered for a moment, but could only come up with, why? He shrugged. You talk to people. People talk to you. We just like to be part of the conversation. Then why don't you talk to the people who are talking to me? Well, I enjoy your perceptions. And in the case of our friend, Signor Ferrari, 
talking is on the list of things he will never be doing again. I had a pretty good idea he meant Howard Washburn, but once again, he stumped me with the movie-related pet name he had assigned. You mean Howard Washburn, right? Mr. Lime just smiled at me as I struggled with the name. Ferrari, Ferrari, it rings a bell. And swats a fly, Lime added wryly. The image flickered through my mind, and I struggled to grasp it. Finally, it came to me. Sydney Greenstreet, Casablanca. Lime nodded. Signor Ferrari, a charming but corrupt businessman, not above playing both sides of the street as long as he benefits in the end. But Howard didn't benefit in the end. Not so much, no. He nodded at me, which I assumed meant I should continue my recitation. You know, I, I didn't really talk to Howard, only by phone. By the time I got to his office, he was... My voice trailed off. You gleaned no insight from the brief telephone encounter? Not really. As I told the police... Yes, you talked to the police. We'll get to that. Let's stay focused on what Signor Ferrari may have imparted. He extended a hand, gesturing for me to continue. All I really got from him was he'd had some business dealings with Dylan LaSalle, and he wasn't comfortable discussing them over the phone. Prudent choice. He rubbed his hands together and seemed unhappy with the results. Harpo, he said. My hand cream. The words were barely out of his mouth, and the servant had already picked up a small white tube from the front seat and passed it back to the old man. Mr. Lime squirted a small amount of lotion on his hands, capped the tube, and handed it back up front. He looked up at me as he spread the cream evenly across both of his pale, bony hands, with particular emphasis on the tips of his skeletal fingers. One of the many, many downsides of aging, he said by way of explanation. Dry hands. Persistently dry Perhaps you should wear gloves, I suggested. He looked up at me sharply. Then his face settled into a more benign countenance. I do. Many days I do, he said. Well, I stammered, you're not alone. It's also a problem for magicians of all ages, I added. Dry hands can make it hard to work with cards. He looked up, his eyes alert. Do you have a product you could recommend? I find most over-the-counter remedies to be too greasy. The sudden change in topic nearly made my head spin. Um, yes, I can't think of the name of it now, but there is a good one out there. I shook my head. Just can't think of the name right now. I would love to hear of it, he said, taking a handkerchief from his breast pocket and giving each of his bony hands a quick once-over. When you think of it, please pass it along. I recognized I had no direct method of contacting him, but decided not to mention that particular issue. So, he continued, handing the slightly soiled handkerchief up to Harpo. You said you spoke to the police. Did they offer any insight? On Howard Washburn or LaSalle? Ferrari, Francis, I'd like to hear whatever transpired. I was unclear as to the proper path to take so I admit I took a quick jog down the one of least resistance. The police seemed to think Dylan was trying to work out a deal with them before his death. 
They didn't give me details. In fact, it sounded as if they didn't actually have many details, I added quickly. Francis, 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 Lime said quietly. And what of his wife, the lovely Phyllis Dietrichson? You mean Trish? A word of warning, my young friend, he said, his raspy voice sounding almost warm. In this life, we all have a little Walter Neff in us. The less we let him out, the bitter off we are likely to be. But enough of this intrigue, he said, playfully clapping his hands with such force I feared for a moment that they might shatter like fine crystal. It's time for another card trick. Oh, Mr. Lime, I said, quickly patting my pockets more for show than might have been necessary. I'm afraid I didn't bring any cards with me today. Not even your invisible deck, he asked, the hint of a twinkle looking quite out of place in his eyes. Not even that one, I said, shaking my head. Not to worry, he said excitedly. We brought our own. Harpo, the cards, if you please. Once again, the servant had anticipated the request and already had the cards in hand. He handed back a card box that looked to be as old as Mr. Lime, if not older. The corners of the box were crushed and worn, providing an ample preview of the distressed cards I found within. I removed the sorry cards from the box and gave the deck a quick Hindu shuffle, feeling immediately how soft and pliable the vintage cards actually were. The poor condition of the deck instantly eliminated a large number of possible illusions. I tried a one-hand shuffle, which felt like I was shuffling a deck of soggy saltines. The deck felt light, which was either from how worn and ragged the cards were, or it might indicate we were shy a few cards. Mr. Lime cleared his throat quietly, and I began to improvise like mad. Well, let me see, I began. This is a variation on a very popular trick in magic circles. It's called Dr. Daly's Last Card Trick. Actually, this is closer to Eddie Fector's version, which he called Be Honest, What Is It? I continued, getting caught up in a mental spiral of accreditation, which in itself is very similar to David Williamson's The Memory Test, although I've made some adjustments of my own, I added, my words trailing off. Sounds intriguing. Mr. Lime said with a sick smile. Why was this Dr. Daly's last trick? I rarely named this trick while performing it, so I was caught off guard by the question. He died after creating it, I explained. May you have better luck. A chill ran down my spine, but I pressed on. Pick a card in your mind, just the value, not the suit, I said as I flipped the deck over and began to sort through it quickly. Mr. Lime touched a finger to his chin and looked up at the dome light, then smiled at me. A queen, he said. I would pick a queen. Excellent choice, I said, as I scanned the deck and was mercifully able to find all four queens. I culled them from the deck and spread them in front of him. Red or black? He gave it much more consideration than I felt was really required, squinting as he considered his options. His eyelids were so thin I was convinced I could see his steel-green eyes right through the skin. Black, he said. I would pick black. That's interesting, I said, setting the two red queens aside. I held up the queen of spades. 
In the world of magic, the Queen of Spades indicates intelligence and intellectual. Mr. Lime smiled as if I had complimented him directly. I held up the other card. The Queen of Clubs, on the other hand, I said this with a smile because it was in fact in the other hand. Mr. Lime offered a grim smirk at my attempt at humor. On the other hand, the Queen of Clubs indicates intuition. This minor demonstration will pit your intelligence against your intuition. Hold out your right hand, palm down, and pinch your thumb and index finger together. He did as instructed. I turned the two cards face down and switched them slowly back and forth between my two hands. This was no three-card Monty move. He would have no trouble following the cards. I placed one of them, still face down, between his thumb and index finger. Now, using your intelligence and your intuition, which card am I holding and which card are you holding? He considered for a moment, more for dramatic effect than actually needing to think about it. I'm holding the Queen of Spades. You are holding the Queen of Clubs. I turned my card over, the Queen of Clubs. He turned his over and smiled. He was holding the Queen of Spades. Excellent, I said taking the card from him and shuffling the two cards back and forth much faster than before. That was your intelligence at work. Now we will test your intuition. I took one of the cards and placed it back between his fingers. I held the other card, its face to my chest. Using your intuition, tell me, which card are you holding and which card am I holding? He thought about this for a long moment. He had a look of real concentration on his face. I glanced toward the front seat and could see even Harpo was studying us closely in the rearview mirror. I believe, he said, choosing his words carefully, that I hold the Queen of Clubs. And that would mean I hold the Queen of Spades? He nodded emphatically. I took my card and placed it on top of his pulling the card out from his finger grasp as I did. I believe in this one instance, your intuition has failed you, I said, for not only do you not hold the queen of clubs, but neither do I. With that, I turned the two cards over and set them on the seat next to him. He gasped, gaping at the two cards, the queen of hearts and the queen of diamonds. He looked up at me, his eyes wide, Intelligence, intuition, neither one is entirely infallible, I said, as I reached across the seat and picked up the two cards I had set aside. I looked at him for a long moment, then turned the cards around, revealing the Queen of Spades and the Queen of Clubs. Mr. Lyme clasped his hands together, looking as thrilled and delighted as an aging psychopath can look. Wonderful, he whispered. Just wonderful. I handed him the cards. Then I think we're done, I said, reaching for the door handle. Yes, he said. Mr. Marks, I think we are done. I opened the car door and tried to mask my eagerness at getting out. Except, he said, and I froze, one foot in the car and one foot out. I turned back to him. Yes, I asked weakly. All I need is the name of that hand cream. And then I think we can call it a day. 
My mind was blank, and the more I pushed to remember the name, the further it receded into my unconscious. I'll give you some time to think about it, he said, and then I'll be back in touch. In the meantime, I will trust you to employ your own intelligence and your intuition to the greatest degree possible. Yes? My head made a movement that resembled a nod as I crawled out of the car. I stood up completely and turned to close the door. My last image of Mr. Lime was of him caressing the four queens. He was making a sound that from where I stood sounded like purring. Then the door was shut and the car roared across the parking lot. That instant, it hit me. Paper cream, I yelled. It's called paper cream fingertip moistener. But the car had already turned the corner and was gone. You know, I have to say this. I love Dr. Daly's last card trick. I should put that back into my one trick repertoire and make it a two trick repertoire. Uh, I included a link in the show notes to someone doing the trick very quickly. Uh, and I have to give a special shout out to a friend and magician and neighbor, uh, Stephen Carlson, who, when I said to him, I'm writing a scene and Eli's given a really beat up deck of cards and told to do a card trick. What should he do? And without a moment's hesitation, he said he should do Dr. Daly's last card trick. And it's a fine little bit of uh, sleight of hand. And anyway, look at the video uh, and, and see how it's done. And, and uh, as you're watching it, thanks, Steve Carlson, for handing that off as, uh, as the perfect little trick for Eli to perform in front of your friend, Jim, Mr. Lime. Oh, boy. Mr. Lime, uh, the character that I'm so glad uh, uh, I, I don't have to do a lot of because it just shreds my voice and you'd think I'd be a smart enough guy by this point talk about your 10,000 hours and doing it wrong right out of the gate that uh, I would have picked a voice that I could sustain uh, that wouldn't shred me uh, but I didn't and nope. uh, we locked into it and that's what yep. it is so that's what uh, it is well uh, spoiler alert here you don't have to do it anymore that's oh. all I'll say about it oh why would yeah. you say that out loud to the well, people? Well, now, now you have to figure out why you don't have to do it anymore. I think maybe he, he was revealed to be someone else or something right. else happened. You never, you never, never know. You don't know about that. Anyway, thank you, Jim, oh. for bringing Mr. Lime to life at least My pleasure. a, a couple times. Yes. All right. So next episode, we are just rolling along with great guest after great guest. And we have got coming up uh, a guy named Pat Hazel. Uh, and I heard of Pat a million years ago. He had a show called The Wonder Bread Years uh, about growing up kind of in the same time period you and I did, Jim. He's a little yeah. tiny bit older, I think. He's a writer-performer. And the reason he's talking to us is he started out as a magician. And he's going to talk to us, uh, kind of like Jeff Altman did, about that transition from being a comedy magician to just being a comedian. And that it all happened because of his friend, Jerry Seinfeld. That's a good friend. That's yeah. a good friend to have. Jerry Seinfeld will be a good friend to have. Yes. Uh, yeah. It, uh, great discussion uh, with Pat. Uh, and I, I really, uh, he was one of the original writers on the Seinfeld series. Uh, and I think, am I right on this? He was Jerry's opening act for a long time? He was. And I don't remember if he mentions it in the interview or not, but he, he made the transition from comedy magician to just comedian at uh, the suggestion of Jerry Seinfeld, who said to him, you don't need all that other stuff. You're funny without it. And so he tried doing it without 
uh, the magic tricks and it worked. And it wasn't until later he realized that he thinks the reason Seinfeld said that was if Pat wasn't the magician, he wouldn't have that extra bag of stuff and they wouldn't have to wait a baggage claim to get it every time they went out on the road. He could just get off the plane and get in the car with Jerry and just save all that time. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but anyway, uh, we'll talk to Pat about that. If you want to check out his podcast ahead of time, he has a fantastic podcast called Creativity and Captivity. In it, he has just fascinating interviews with creative people about their process. Feel free to check it out for the next episode. If I remember, I'll throw a link in, in this episode's show notes. But he has talked to the late uh, manager, George Shapiro. He talked to Susan Stroman, um, just people from all kinds kinds of fields, a couple uh, people who've worked it for Disney and theme park creation. It's one of those podcasts where everybody that he has is worth listening to because he's such a good interviewer and he picks such great people to talk to. Anyway, that's our next episode. What's, what's the name of that podcast, John? It's called Creativity in Captivity. Creativity in Captivity. Great. Now, I will check that out. That's, uh, that's good. And following Pat Hazel, special two-part episode ooh, with ooh. writer and director Nicholas Meyer. He checks a lot of boxes for me. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, um, his father wrote a great book called Houdini, A Mind in Chains. And mm -hmm. Nicholas turned that into a great uh, a miniseries with Adrian Brody as Houdini, who is charming. As And my understanding was Houdini, not charming. Uh, but Adrian Brody certainly is charming. Yeah. It's wor worth watching the miniseries um, just to see uh, Adrian Brody. But it's a great miniseries. So there's one thing. He yeah. also um, is a huge Sherlock Holmes guy and has written several Sherlock Holmes mysteries that John will tell you he believes are better than Conan Doyle's mysteries. Uh, but yeah, he he has nailed how to write a Sherlock Holmes novel. Uh, and that's what part two will be about. We'll, we'll talk about his Sherlock Holmes books and how Sherlock Holmes works and when it doesn't work. And then because he opened the door, wasn't our fault, he opened the door. We do get a little bit into the Star Trek Wrath of Khan universe because he was the director of that and the writer-director of Voyage Home, I believe. So we get to talk uh, a little bit about the Wrath of Khan. Khan! Was he the director of that movie too? Of Wrath of Khan. He directed it. And as he'll, I think, say in the interview, uh, he certainly said it elsewhere. Um, he essentially was given five different scripts right. that they had, and they had to go into production. And he sat down with the producers and said, what do you like from each one of these? And they told him the parts they liked. And I think in 12 days, he took them all and combined them and wrote a brand new script called The Wrath of Khan. Uh, and he will tell you, you know, I didn't come up with Khan. That came from here. I didn't come up with the sandworm Son. thing. That came up from someone else. But he said, I took them all and I wrote all the dialogue. Yes. So he, he doesn't get credit as the writer not um, least, I get credit at the writer. I don't want to, but there's a piece of modern culture that he is directly responsible for. And I'm not going to tell you what We're it is. I'm not going to tell you, but, you, but as soon but as, as you soon, hear it, you'll go, you're going to go, oh my gosh, that came from that. That came from him. Yeah. So you'll find that out in probably in part two. Now you ought to check out those bonus videos. That's what you ought to do. Uh, Behind the Page has a YouTube channel. If you didn't know, uh, you're going to find some great stuff by Kayla Drescher there talking about her experience on Fool Us. And there's a whole bunch of great stuff on that YouTube channel. Indeed. And you'll also get to see uh, Kayla perform on Foolish. And it's a it's a it's a really sweet little performance. Uh, and while you're online, we keep saying it, please 
rate and review us if you want. If you don't, you're, you're probably gone by this point to make podcast. You, know, you, you people who don't want to rate and review, you're probably gone. So that's yeah, fine. We're, we're just, not talking to you anymore. No, we're talking to the here. folks who stick around who want to hear to all the way to the end. Anyway, that's if right. you can do that, that'd be great. And subscribe, folks. Subscribe and tell your friends about us if you get a chance. We're having fun. We hope you are, too. And we can't thank you enough for listening. To Thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode, episode 214 with Mr. Pat Hazel. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.